This morning we continue our series called Seasons. We have been looking at the different seasons of our lives. Uh, This was inspired by the fact that my family and I are going through a season of transition. Um, We are transitioning from here down to Bozeman. Uh, I'm going to be the teaching pastor at Journey Church uh, this coming fall. And so there's a lot of different things going on in our house. There's boxes piling up and it's not stressful at all, um, which is why I'm sick. No, it's, it's great. Um, so we've been inspired by that to think about the reality that we all have seasons in life and that we're all in different seasons of life. And we wanted to lean into that idea uh, throughout this Series. We'll have uh, two more weeks after this in this series on seasons. And then uh, in July and August, we're going to do a series. I don't even know. I haven't figured out a title yet, but it's about Jesus. That's what it's going to be. Okay. And you're like, oh, the obvious one, Pastor Brian. But no, no. So stay with me here. I was thinking about, okay, um, if I could preach on one thing, like if I had one more sermon, what would I preach on? I'd preach on Jesus. Um, and, and so this is going to effectively July, August will be sort of my last official sermon series at Big Sky Christian Fellowship. Uh, we had a wonderful time of communion with the worship team uh, up kind of in Porcupine Creek this past week. And we were talking about the necessity and centrality of Jesus. And it just got real crystallized in my mind. Like that's what I want to preach on for July and August. So we're going to just have a Jesus, Jesus, Jesus series. Maybe that's what we'll call it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, um, and should be a good one, but two more weeks of seasons today, seasons of connection, seasons of connection will be in the book of Ruth. Um, I will cite a couple passages out of it, but Ruth is this long, okay? So if you're not a Bible reader, you can do it, okay? Get this book and read this little tiny book right after Judges. If you're turning the pages too fast, you'll miss it. That's how short it is, okay? And read Ruth this week. It's a fantastic book of the Bible. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament, and it's a great Father's Day message because it's a love message. Isn't that awesome? Because at Mother's Day, I did one on David cutting the head off of Goliath, and all the mothers were like, boo, so this is, I'm making up for it, okay? On Father's Day, I'm doing the love message. Turn around is fair play. Let's talk about millennials, shall we? Let's do it. Who loves millennials? Raise your hand. Just, I'm, no, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. Okay. Um, millennial generation. They get all kinds of press. They're a huge generation. It'll be the next biggest generation in America. Uh, if you're born after 1980, um, you're probably in that range of being in the millennial generation or the generation after that, which I believe is they're calling Z at the moment until they come up with a better name for it. But you're part of that millennial generation, which kind of gets a, a lot of baggage thrown at it. Millennials are sort of known as like maybe a little lazy, maybe a little entitled. Uh, they think about themselves a lot. Um, I, I haven't uh, now. I haven't found that to be completely true, 
But there are some things about this generation that are interesting that we should look at and think about and consider. And one of those is that they're a digital generation. They're a digital generation. So a lot of millennials don't remember the days when you used to have to take a phone and go like this. And then when you messed up, you're like, oh, it's going to take me 10 minutes to dial that phone number again, right? They grew up in a digital a digital generation, a generation of instant gratification, a generation of Instagram and Facebook. Raise your hand for real now. Who of you are on Facebook or Instagram? Raise your hand. Raise them high and leave them up. I want to see. Okay, let's do this. Raise your hand if you're not on Instagram or Facebook. Okay, some people. Okay. Are you on any type of social media? Some of you are on no social media. Who's on no social media? The few, the proud. All right. I like it. 81% of millennials are on Facebook or Instagram. Half the world's population is on Facebook or Instagram. And on Instagram or Facebook, you can... You can have friends or followers, and you can connect with those friends or followers. And my man over here is just shaking his head, right? You're like, you got some commentary on this. You're like, I should be preaching this one. Okay, right? Because I, I think maybe some of your reaction is this, maybe. Shake your head yes or no if I'm right here. You, can you really have a thousand friends? Right. That's right. Okay. So you want to talk to me. You're my people. Okay. Okay. I like it. I like it. And your wife's like, settle, settle. Okay. All right. See, see you can have a thousand friends. You can have 3,000 followers. You, you can be so connected. And what's really interesting about the millennial generation is that while they're the most connected generation, they're also the most disconnected generation. Millennials have a higher um, a higher rate of suicide than any generation before. Suicide is at an all-time high right now in the United States. In fact, there are three factors right now that are pushing the national age of um, age expectancy of Americans down. This is this, this has just happened in the last three years, and there are three things um, that are driving that statistic that our age expectancies are going down in the United States, and those are suicide. Um, accidental death, which would entail overdoses um, or some sort of related. And, and then, um, oh, what's the last one? Um, oh, it's, I can't remember. Yeah, something like that. Isn't it high-risk behavior? Something like that, right? So, um, so I mean, it is, these are things that are coming out of this millennial generation that are giving us a sense that even though they might be the most connected generation, they're also the most lonely, depressed, displaced, and disconnected generation. And so here's the question for us this morning. When was your last season of connection? When was your last great season of connection? Um, one of my great seasons of connection was dating my wife. Lori and I, we've been married for 14 wonderful years. Mostly wonderful. I think we've got more wonderful than not wonderful years right now. Anyway, 14 years. I remember when I met Lori, 
and started courting Lori. And I thought, I want to connect with this person. And the night that I asked her out on our first date, it was a test. I said to her, do you want to go on an adventure or do you want to just chill? And if she said chill, I was going to like give her a couple more dates and we'll just see. But if she said adventure, I was like, all right. And she said adventure. And so I said, well, come dressed in something that you can get dirty in. And so she came uh, in um, sweatpants and a sweatshirt and hoodie to our first date. And I was in love. (laughs) And we went, uh, we were in Iowa at the time. We were both going to school, or she was going to school in Iowa, and I was helping out with a church plant there. And we went uh, out into this cornfield in the middle of Iowa. We wandered through this cornfield until there was this big abandoned barn, because there's not that much to do in Iowa. And, <laughs> and in that big abandoned barn, there's this hayloft and this huge swing, and everybody kind of knew about it, and you could go up and climb up there, and you could play around in the hayloft and swing. And it, w- it was just a really cool spot and so we went out there and we sat in the windowsill of that old barn and we just talked and talked and talked I didn't I didn't try to make a move right not that not that it's any of your business okay but I didn't try to make a move on her we talked we talked about her family we talked about Montana we talked about my family in Denver We talked about her siblings. We talked about my siblings. We talked about her upbringing. We talked about the things she loves and the things I love. We talked about the things she hates and the things that I hated. We connected and connected. In fact, we sat in that windowsill until about 2 in the morning on our first date. And I just thought, man, I, I just want to know this person. It was just this great season of connection. We all have these seasons of these connections, these moments of connection, and it's a deep needed human capacity. A deep human need is connection. A deep human need is connection. Who are you deeply connected to? That's what I want to ask you this morning. Like if you could give me your list of people who are you deeply connected to, who would you make who would make your top like five, right? I mean, for the most part, we actually have a really small list of people that we're deeply connected with. Even though we can have a thousand Facebook friends, the reality is those that we are deeply connected to are actually very, very small. So who are those people on your list? I only have a few on my list. My wife. Uh, I have some really good friends, Matt and Eileen, who have been with us uh, since college, and they're great, great friends of ours in Denver. Every time we're there, we go and spend time with them. Jim Barnard, Chris Howe, my dad. Um, But this is this deep sense of human need. We need, we need connection. We need connection. And the story of Ruth, it reveals to us our need for connection to each other and to God. See, we were made for this. It's not an accident that you need connection. It's not also an accident that because millennials are so disconnected, there's, there's these things that are coming out in their generation that are so horrible for them. Because we're made for these connections. So uh, the story of Ruth reveals to us our need for connection to each other and to God. Instead of um, reading just a couple passages in this, I want to tell you the story 
The story of Ruth begins with this in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So here's how the story begins. There's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. And so this family, led by this father, this husband, Elimelech, says, we're going to go over to Moab because we've heard that there's food over there and we want to provide for our family. We want to take them, take us there so that we can provide for the family. So they go to Moab, and while they're in Moab, Elimelech's two sons get married, right? And they're married for 10 years. And in this span of time, Elimelech dies and Elimelech's two sons die, leaving, leaving Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, right? Orpah and Ruth. Not a very encouraging beginning to the story, especially if you put yourself in that time and in that place, right? Um, in that time and in that place, in that culture, if you didn't have a husband, if you didn't have sons who could take care of you, if you didn't have uh, male leadership in your household, you were in trouble. You're in huge trouble. And, and so uh, the start of this story is that Naomi is in uh, deep need. She's in deep need for connection. Her husband has died. Her sons have died. And her daughters-in-law are all that is left. And so Naomi decides she's going to head back to Bethlehem. She has heard that in Bethlehem, God has come back to the aid of his people and that there's food now in Bethlehem. So she's going to go back to her own people and hopefully maybe they can somehow provide for her. But, but the outlook is not good. And so, so what she does with her daughters-in-law, because she's a good mother-in-law, she says to Orpah and she says to Ruth, listen, listen, you go to your families, go back to your families and maybe you can, maybe you can find someone to marry there and, and then you can be taken care of and things are going to be good for you. And so Naomi urges them to go and Orpah and Ruth, they cry and they weep and and Orpah says, okay, I'm, I'm going to go. But Ruth, it says, she, she clung to Naomi. We don't really know exactly why. Shouldn't know. We don't know if there was just a special relationship. But for some reason, Ruth clings to Naomi and says, no, I'm, I'm going to go with you. One of the most famous passages in this book, she looks at Naomi and she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Naomi and Ruth, they go back to Bethlehem. The story continues. As Naomi urges Ruth, 
to go out into the field of a relative named Boaz. All right, Boaz. It is Father's Day. Let's talk about dudes, okay? Boaz, rugged man, dark skin, green eyes, piercing like the sun. Boaz, a man after women's hearts. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's not in there. I'm just making that up, okay? <laughs> but Boaz owns a bunch of fields. That's what we know. Boaz owns a bunch of fields. And he owns these fields where they go through and, and, and they collect all the grain. And, and Naomi says to Ruth, hey, go out into Boaz's field. Maybe he'll be good to you. Maybe he'll show favor. Maybe he'll have kindness that he'll show to you. And, and maybe you can glean from the field. Anybody know about gleaning? You ever heard of gleaning? So gleaning is you get to pick up whatever's left over, essentially, right? We lived in the Central Valley, California for a while. And you could glean, legally glean, in the orchards in uh, California. Actually, only one-third of the produce produced in the Central Valley actually gets to market. Two-thirds of it gets wasted, actually, um, because it's not perfect enough for us to buy in the store, or something's wrong with it, or it doesn't get picked. Like, because peaches and oranges, there's no, like, orange picker. There's, like, people on ladders, and they hand-pick them. That's how crazy it is, all right? So you can go and you can glean in those fields. And so, uh, so Naomi sends Ruth out to glean in the fields and Boaz looks over and says, Hey, who's, who's this over here? Who's the new gal? And he, he talks to, um, he talks to the workers and, and he says, I, I like this Ruth. I know she's, she's part of like our clan. I've heard her story about her and her mother-in-law and l- let's take care of her. Like in fact, let's let her. Let's leave some grain for her, so that when she comes to glean, it's not that she's actually gleaning what's just left over. She's actually gleaning like the the ripe heads of the wheat. And because of this, Naomi is blessed through Ruth. Ruth collects and collects and brings this all back to Ruth, and they are provided for. And as the story continues, or uh, um, Naomi sends Ruth. To, to Boaz and says, hey, I, I think you should get to know this guy a little bit. I heard he's in the threshing room, which I don't, I, don't, I don't know the terminology here, but late one night she went to the threshing room, so I don't know what that means, but anyway. Um, late one night she went to the threshing room and, and she talked to Boaz and uh, they talked about how he was a redeemer. How he could redeem Naomi's land. And with redeeming Naomi's land, he would also be able to redeem Ruth. There's a couple twists and turns towards the end of the story. I won't ruin it for you. You should go and read it this afternoon. But essentially what happens is that Boaz, being a man after God's heart, being a man after God's character, he he redeems Ruth. He redeems Naomi's fields. And, and honestly, um, they have a child together who's in the lineage of King David, who is then in the lineage of Jesus himself. This epic story of connection. Connection of a daughter and two daughter-in-laws, 
to their mother-in-law, a special connection between one daughter-in-law and one mother-in-law, a new and growing connection between this woman and Boaz. And there's one word that surfaces early in the story that kind of helps us understand connection and the deep necessity for it. And this is when the Hebrew matters. It doesn't always matter, but sometimes it does. Just like the Greek doesn't always matter, but sometimes it does. And there's a word found in chapter 1, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. The word there is called chesed. Chesed. And what that word means is more than just kindness. And for just a few moments, I want to unpack what Hesed is so that it can help us in our connections with one another and with God. Four aspects of the Hebrew word Hesed. Number one, it does mean kindness. It does mean kindness. So Naomi says uh, to her daughters-in-law, go back to your own land so that God may show some kindness to you. Kindness seems like an easy thing, doesn't it? Like, like we, can, we, fig- we should be able to figure out kindness really easily. Something's really striking about kindness, though, isn't it? I sent my kid to kindergarten this year, and, and they had this unit, part, part of their learning. And the first unit on sort of their character was on kindness. What's funny is they didn't have to teach him meanness. Isn't that interesting? Like there's this, there's this little like white lie that kind of floats around culture from time to time and it says something like this. Oh, people are good. They're good. They're inherently good. If we can just get to the good, it's all good. It's going to be good, 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 good. But for some reason, a baby comes out and all they care about is themselves. For some reason, kids want their toys to be theirs. And they're not very good at sharing And for some reason in kindergarten, the first unit of character teaching is on kindness. Huh. See, this word hesed means kindness. Do you you see a bunch of kindness when you're driving the canyon these days? (laughs) Do you find a bunch of kindness on the mountain when someone cuts you off? Do you find kindness on the river when someone is in your favorite fishing spot? I, I don't have time for that. Um, I wish I did. Um, for the fishermen in the room, there's like something that happens inside of you, like deep inside of you, when you like roll up and there's a car in your spot. And even worse, there's a guy or a gal standing in your spot. And you're like, what are you doing here? Didn't you know that this is my spot? It's the opposite of the set. Said is kindness. Um, and we see this especially in the piece of the story where Boaz enters. He doesn't need to let Ruth glean in the field, but his kindness, his kindness goes above and beyond just the ordinary. See, for connection, we need kindness. For connection, we need to think of others more than we think of ourselves. For connection, we just, we need to be like kindergartners and learn to be nice. Man, if, if we were known as the kindest people, if Christians were known as the kindest, 
people. I think it'd make a big difference. Number two, loyalty. We see this most vividly in Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She says, I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to connect myself to you, even if it's not for my good. Part of the word said entails is loyalty. Um, I, didn't, I didn't intend to use this, but I'm going to. So um, Sarah Mitchell's father um, had a congregation right here. Yeah, right there. Just very proud. Had a congregation that you served for how many years? 28 years. And you just had your retirement from that. How was it? Awesome. Awesome. And probably tough um, and amazing because you've been so loyal to that congregation. They've been so loyal to you for 28 years. Part of his said is this deep abiding loyalty. It's what we see in marriages that last 30, 40, 50 years. Whenever I do weddings, I, I, I don't pray for a good wedding ceremony. I pray for the 10 year, the 20 year, the 30 year, the 40 year, the old and gray sitting next to each other in the rocker chair, not saying anything because you have nothing left to say. <laughs> that kind of loyalty, right? One year at a time. There you go. Part of the said speaks about loyalty. And I'm going to lean in a second. I'm just going to lean in. Part of why it's been hard for some of you with my leaving is that you have felt that I'm not loyal. Can I say that? Is it okay? I'm not going to look at you. I'm just going to say that. Okay. Um... And I want you to know that I know you feel that way. And I don't have a lot to fix that. I'm not, I'm not going to be here for 28 years. Um, I really do feel like God's called me to go serve um, at Journey Church. Um, but I want to at least say to you, I understand um, that this hurts. And I understand that some of you feel betrayed, maybe even. And like I haven't been as loyal to you as you thought I should be. And and I don't have really words to like fix that for us this morning. But I I do need you to know that I still have chesed in my heart for you. I always will. um, Even if it feels um, like that is a little tainted. Move on. Grace. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. We see great grace throughout this story. Ruth could have not gone with Naomi. She didn't have to. It was unmerited favor. She said, your people will be my people. I'm going with you. That's what I'm doing. There was no reason, no rhyme to this. Right? There was no safety in that decision. If she would have gone back to her people, they probably would have taken care of her. But instead she goes with someone else's People, she shows great grace, great unmerited favor. We need more of this in our lives. You think about the people that you love and cherish the most. Those are on the top five of your list. I can guarantee you there's one thing they've given you. Grace. Right? Some of you have lost relationships over this too, huh? Right? Some of you have been in these really, really difficult moments and somebody hasn't had grace for you and with you. 
and has ruptured that connection. Because said love is filled with grace. And number four, said is filled with love. Hesed is love. Ultimately, this story is just a good old-fashioned love story. It's a story of a great love of a daughter-in-law for a mother-in-law. It's a great story of a great love from a, a man and a woman who become husband and wife. Ultimately, Hesed is about this deep, abiding commitment and love for one Another And here is a seasonal reminder. You were made for connection. Ultimately, this is a love story. But I want to end with this thought. Who's the greatest lover in this story? Who's the greatest lover in this story? We can get caught up in Ruth and Naomi and, and us being like, I would never do that for my mother-in-law. But by the way, I like my mother-in-law a lot. Not sure I'd move to foreign land with her, but you know. Ultimately, it's not about that. Ultimately, it's not about Boaz, who shows up and redeems this whole situation and marries Ruth. Ultimately, this story is a metaphor. And it's a metaphor to teach us about the great chesed love that the Father has for us. See, we were made for connection. We were made for connection with one another, but ultimately we were made for connection with one true and living God. A God who knows your story. A God who knows your season. A God who knows what you've been through. A God that sees you in each and every season and cherishes you, is loyal to you, heaps grace upon grace upon grace and love and mercy upon your life. Once again, it's Father's Day today. But I hope that today you can celebrate the love of your heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would continue to be as you are, kind and good and loving. God, we don't even need to ask for that because that's who you are. God, help us to recognize that though. Sometimes we, sometimes we get in the way. And we don't see clearly where you are in the story, where you are in the season. And oftentimes, God, we just don't seek your face. God, I, I pray that you would help us long for connection with you. I pray that in this season, even of transition for this church, that we would focus our eyes only upon you. I pray, God, that you would draw us together, united in you. That our connection with you would only increase our connection with one another. And, God, I pray for uh, the time of connection that we're going to have across the street at the park now. I pray that you would allow it to be a wonderful time. Yes, this all in Jesus' name. Amen.